one and we are recording mr david hoffman and it's been about a year since you came on and we talked about your book billion dollar spy another book i love that i will put in the description but today's Great. book is and and you've got the cover right there but i'll hold it up on my phone but it's, let me hold it up so people can much see better it. much better give me liberty the true story of oscar paya and his daring quest for a free cuba did i did i get it off the dome right did i remember oswaldo paya oswaldo paya absolutely fantastic and like so like i was just telling you before this it is it's not at all the lesson i was expecting you to get out of it although perhaps in hindsight it should have been more apparent that it would be was what a blessing it is to live here just the tiniest little things about signatures or the secret police turning away a taxi or 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 being harassed on a vacation and you're in swim trunks and it's he's using his capitalist cia money and the broken glass and hot coals i mean you got to walk over just to have i mean really the liberties that i have and I haven't done a thing to earn them. I was born into it. I rolled the dice and got born into a family in America in 1990. I mean, truly, like it starts to dawn on me at 32 years old. Like, oh, I was born halfway between third base and home plate. Like, I, it, I'm just blessed. And I you mean, know, Tommy, I also, uh, having done this book, have given a lot of thought to what you're saying because I think people don't yet realize that we're in a desperate struggle to uh, preserve this particular thing that we cherish. And, you know, uh, I was overseas for a period in the 1995 to 2001. I was Moscow bureau chief for the Washington Post. If you just took that period, late 90s, Russia was, you know, trying to be a democracy. It was pretty uneven, but they were trying. They're trying to be a market economy. China was saying, you know, we're going to have a peaceful rise. And we're also trying to be a market economy. And we want to be in the WTO. Well, these two giant countries, uh, rivals of the United States, have turned out to be dictatorships in the worst possible way. Not to mention what's happened in Turkey, for example, Egypt. Uh, Venezuela, obviously Cuba, Belarus, a small country, but terribly important for Europe, has become a dictatorship allied with Russia. So I, I also feel like the lessons of this book, which we'll talk about in Cuba, are actually the story of a real-time serious conflict that's all around us that I don't think we've quite woken up to yet it worries me that uh, both russia and china are now headed down this path of of severe absolute dictatorship real to real effort to make to totalitarian societies whereas 10 15 years ago they were not i think you said it best in the book and it's these dictatorships are very fragile in their rising they're they're fragile at their apexes relatively at their apex as well but rising I mean, there's a reason why they 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 crank down on everything, why they batten down the hatches and they stop all forms of of information flow and free press and the almost how they laugh. Like, what do you mean you're getting signatures and it's in our Constitution? That's like that's like me walking up to the Federal Reserve and being like, you owe me a bar of gold. And it's like, dude, we haven't been doing that for 50 years. What are you and what army? Like, right. And it's but you have. You have them going around and doing these things just to get just to get their voices heard in something that is technically legal. 
but the more it's almost like the quote right that some of the special forces guys i've interviewed always use it they say like sweat on the sweat in the gym is uh blood saved on the battlefield there is almost something about it may be a tough fight to do it a legal way and to get the signatures and to verify them and to you know have your phone tap have your phone tapped but it is still worlds easier than the inevitable violent revolution that you'll eventually have to do to get out of it and that is i think the big takeaway is is it's the the an ounce of prevention is equal to a pound of cure right or whatever the term is you know what i'm saying well let's talk about paya do you like to start um, specifically? Oh, so well, let's talk about the book. Okay, yeah, yeah. So well, Paya. I mean, the beginning is is terrifying. And the in the and I got a mess. So I was driving around earlier today, and I'll I'd be lying if I said I didn't I wasn't always looking at every car in my rearview mirror. Just today, I mean, literally just I mean, what do I have to worry about? But just today, just driving around the rain in Maryland, I was just looking at my and I was like, I was like, well, like, what would I do if that car came up to me? What how how would I act? But the it it does start as you see the difference the stark contrast between the idealistic the revolution the you know it's the people's way and how it has to keep going and then you almost see the sort of the blind the blind allegiance to it you know the revolution does not partake in in assassinations that's not what this is and like you killed my husband you killed my husband no we do not do that but he just keeps moving forward with, I mean, for lack of a more formal term, with balls of steel. Go back to your house or you'll be arrested. Eh, I've already left. You know, come and get it. But, and I think that some may look at it as as naive. Like, why are you trying to get signatures in a in a communist hellhole? But I do think that there's something to be said for going by the rule of law, no matter how much the authorities laugh at it that you still go through the mechanism, the civil mechanisms, because it's like what Smedley Butler said to the soldiers in 1933, the bonus army soldiers, if you start rioting, you will lose the sympathy of the entire nation. And as frustrating as it is, you have to go through the legal mechanisms. And I mean, let's let's go back and and help your listeners understand who we're talking about. Okay. Okay. Um, This is a book about one man, that stood up to a totalitarian system. Um, he did it really by himself. And uh, as we'll see, he paid a very high price for it. But let's help people understand what happened. Okay. His name was Oswaldo Paya, and he was born in 1952. Um, he lived his whole life in dictatorship, the first eight years of Batista, and then the whole rest of it under Castro's revolution. And as you said, that revolution began with kind of high hopes. Castro had promised the mm-hmm. Cuban people he was going to have a revolution for democracy. He issued manifestos. He said, we're going to have a pure, uh, completely beautiful elections. Uh, you know, that this was his great promise that he was actually the anti-dictator. But as I show in the book um, through the 1960s, he turned very authoritarian and also allied himself with Soviet communism. And those two things produced the opposite of what he had proposed. So by the time he was a teenager, Oswaldo Payal was 13 years old in 
1965. His father was a private businessman. It was a kind of a family business where his father distributed newspapers and, you know, things like bubble gum and stuff at kiosks around Havana. I mean, the guy was well known at every single kiosk, every hotel door. He was the one who would distribute all the papers, textbooks, and so on. So it was a private business. And Fidel Castro was uh, increasingly allied with Soviet communism so and socialism and eventually began to confiscate all these private businesses, including the one Oswaldo's father had in 1965. Paya was only 13 years old. The militia marched in one day. Paya was actually standing there in the, his father's kind of warehouse. It was an old house that they used as a warehouse. And, you know, the militia guy said, stand back from the cash register. And mm -hmm. they marched his father off in handcuffs. They took his cars. They grabbed his all of his inventory and you know, the father, his father came back two weeks later, a little unshaven and said, well, that's over with. I'm going to do something else, but keep your heads up. You know, we're not going to give in. So that was his first experience in high school. He became very contrarian. You know, he uh, actually led a protest to the Soviet uh, crackdown the, in, in Prague, the, the, you know, destruction of the Prague Spring, Oswaldo. Believe me, there weren't very many high school kids who would like stand up to Castro in, in 1968. And then he was sent off to the forced labor camps that Castro had set up for three years, you know, basically working in a quarry. A limestone, yeah. Limestone stuff. And so when he came back from that, he wanted to get into University of Havana and he, he did to study physics. But because of his views were so contrarian to the revolution, they forced him out. Um, they made it hard for him to get a job. And eventually, by the time the 1980s came around, this guy had reached some basic conclusions. One of them is very important is that people have a right to rights that is not bestowed by the state. Now, mm -hmm. Swaldo was a very. Your, your audio just cut out. I'm sorry about there that. You go. Swaldo there you... was a, a very committed Roman Catholic and he, you know, he believed that basically rights were given to you by God at the time you were born, not by Fidel Castro. He also believed, as he grew a little bit older and had gone through these trials and tribulations, that Cubans ought to become the protagonists of their own history and yeah. not sit on the sidelines as the spectators. And, you know, here's a guy who never lived in a state of liberty but it lived in his mind his whole life. Yeah. So what to do about it? By the 1980s, he was pretty deeply involved as a member of the laity in the church. And the bishops of Cuba, especially their leader, Jaime Ortega, who was the Archbishop of Havana, realized that they had been left behind by the Latin American church um, really, people had ignored them. Fidel Castro had made religion essentially a marginalized thing. You know, Oswaldo saw this with his own eyes. Uh, people were were uh, stoned, not with large stones. People threw pebbles at them on the way to church. People threw raw eggs at the doors of their parish church, or they took a motorcycle and raced it around the church during mass to make a loud noise to disrupt things. So he saw persecution of Christians his 
entire life, including in his own family. And he uh, had become an assistant to Jaime Ortega, the Archbishop of Havana. He was in his early 30s, and they decided in the Catholic Church in Cuba to have a kind of re-examination of everything, a reflection on what, where was the church going and what should it do, because they were completely marginalized. Christians, uh, especially Catholics, were pushed to the side for jobs, harassed, um, and we were not even permitted really to worship in the open, only inside. For example, I tell the story in the book about how uh, it was prohibited at Christmas time to have outdoor decorations. You could have a Christmas tree in your house, but not outside. And Paya and a couple of his pals defied this by hanging a Merry Christmas sign on the steeple of the church outside, yeah. blinking, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so so these guys, you know, this guy, they had this sort of internal kernel of defiance and, and dissent that they uh, were playing out. And Oswaldo thought that maybe the church was going to be the vehicle that would let him fight back and that Ortega's big uh, kind of re-examination would be the moment where he could really express himself. Unfortunately, it turned out differently. Secretly, Ortega was working on a rapprochement with Fidel Castro on basically getting the church and the revolution together. He didn't tell us all well, of that. And also when Paya had came up with a very kind of a defiant speech he wanted to give in the final conference of this reexamination. Uh, it was a speech that summoned the Catholic Church to be really the vanguard of truth and freedom and saying, look, we're the ones who would stand up behind me. Ortega told him he couldn't give the speech and couldn't introduce the paper in the final report because that would piss off Fidel. Anyway, Oswaldo was terribly angry and upset by this because he had put a couple of years into thinking that the church would be the way out. And here he was, you know, it was the eighties and he had, he was in his thirties and the thing had fallen apart. So this shows you how, at least in the first part of his life, um, many of his ideals and hopes for standing up for freedom didn't come true and were in uh, many times he uh, led to disappointment and anger on his part, and he didn't yet have an outlet for it. So that's sort of the first part of this guy's evolution. And again, his family was sort of middle class, but were marginalized because uh, they were Catholics, because his father was in private business. His father, by the way, after having his business taken away of delivering papers, he went into a kind of a clandestine business of making basically what, what you might consider today baseball cards. Yeah. These little cards were a game that kids played with lots of famous actors on them. And uh, they were hugely popular and he sold them underground and he made his living that way. So the thing is that this was not a, a perfect totalitarian society. There were always people trying to fight back and there were cracks in it and there continued to be. And Payad never gave up. You know, if you can imagine somebody fighting in this system from the time he was a teenager, you know, and here he is now I've brought you up to his mid thirties, um, this great struggle within the church, which didn't succeed all the other things, the forced labor camp, you know, uh, high school protests being forced out of university. He was still as determined as ever to say we ought to be the protagonists of our own history.
I actually quote you a lot uh, from our last episode, Billion Dollar Spy, and it's something you said. <clears throat> I don't remember if you said it in the book, but I know you said it in the in the podcast. And it was the hidden hand of a totalitarian system in that just like there's the invisible hand of the um Adam of Smith. the free, of the free yeah, yeah the free market you know how, how come i have power aid well i mean you could you can go back and find it but it was no, it wasn't a top down government program just through evolution and natural selection we now have this the cheapest price or the best whatever but you talked about kind of the almost like an inverse of it of a totalitarian system in that it will always be creating dissidents there will always be people who will I'm not going to go out and riot. I'm comfortable. My stomach's full. My family's happy. I'm in America. But when you have people who like Oleg, who may just be a guy working at a, you know, an aircraft uh, company, but his parents or his wife's parents were thrown in a gulag. There's that splinter. There's always that grudge. There's always a, a blister. And when they have the up and they'll eventually, they eventually snap where they get like, don't you know, this is dangerous. And it's like, I don't care. I hate them. You have that. And I think you're almost seeing the parallels in uh, in Oswaldo Paya. Would that, yeah, would I that... think there is some parallels there. And I'm also very much struck by his determination, mm-hmm. which uh, after the disappointment of the church in 1986, um, uh, he met a woman who became his wife, Ophelia, who shared his views. And a big question for him, he was teaching high school at the time, but a big question is what to do now. You know, the what, this whole idea that he'd had for years that the Catholic Church would help him find his way out. Even when he was a kid, the church was always a place for free thinking. Um, and he participated in the youth group where he felt free. It just hadn't worked. So he decided and after that moment in 1986 to turn to politics. And, of course, there weren't any really competitive free politics in, a, in the totalitarian state, right? And in Cuba's revolution, um, everything was controlled by the state and therefore by the revolution. And, you know, Fidel had basically said in 1961, um, everything within the revolution is allowed and everything outside of it is not. And Aswana Pile was clearly outside of it. So by turning to politics, he was really turning to something that could have seemed like a daunting dead end. Mm. And now I must pause just to tell you that there was an opening and this is, requires a few seconds of retreat sure. to history sure. because uh, in the period after Spain lost the war in eight, you know, 1899 and essentially the end of uh, the war for independence when Cuba was independent and the United States had helped the Cuban rebels achieve that independence. The United States ruled for two years in a military occupation. And in May of 1902, um, Cuba had its own constitution and became a independent republic. And it was that until essentially March of 1952, half a century. People have forgotten some about the Cuban Republic. Um, It was a very, very turbulent time. It was an effort to be a democracy, although there was at least uh, one major dictatorship during that period. But after the dictatorship of the 1930s, there was a decision made to try again to be a good democracy, a working democracy. And in the late 1930s, um, with the help of a strong man, uh, Batista, the Cubans approved their a really progressive 
and democratic constitution. It was approved in 1940. And it was a huge constitution. It was way too many pages and had far too many provisions. You know, it was like they stuffed everything into it. But one of the provisions that was really important was kind of a check on future uh, dictatorship. Which And it said if 10,000 people sign a petition for a law, they can present it to the parliament and get it passed. And there was actually not a lot of debate about this. Everybody sort of agreed with it. it was passed in the Constitution. When Fidel Castro took over in 1959, he tore up that Constitution. But amazingly, he didn't tear up this provision. Yeah, yeah. He kind of like cut and pasted it into his fundamental law, and he left it there. And in 1976, when Fidel Castro rewrote the Constitution again, he left it there, maybe thinking that, gee, nobody's ever going to try yeah. this. Yeah. And by the way, Tommy, nobody ever had. Right. Yeah. But a few times in the 1980s, two fellows who I discussed in the book did try to collect signatures like called for in that 1940 Constitution. Both times they were arrested and obviously they failed. But Oswaldo Pia had heard about this. He knew of that provision, and he knew of these two guys who had tried before. And he kept thinking, there's got to be a way for us to reclaim our role as the protagonist of our own history. Let's use the law itself. It was He was a little bit vague at the beginning because he wasn't sure what he was going to use it for. But he decided to turn to politics and go out and collect signatures for what? Well, the first handbill he handed out was pretty vague, you know, signatures for freedom, for liberty, for democracy. But it didn't really say much. And after he did it for a year, quietly, pretty much, he got a couple hundred people to sign. Um, Castro's regime attacked him. They had something called an acto de repudio, in which the mob organized by the government attacked his house, broken the door. Took there was a table with the signatures on a book, overturned it, overturned his statue of Jose Marti, the famous independent leader. Uh, also painted graffiti on the outside of the house saying Paya, you yeah. know, KG, CIA, CIA. Anyway, but the point is that the, he was not disturbed by this, but he thought, gee, I better do something different. So then he thought, maybe we need a a roadmap, you know, to tell people exactly what I want the signatures he thought up a 46 page single spaced plan for transition to democracy it's actually quite an amazing document it took a lot of brains a lot of which he just didn't come from books just from living but you know what by 1991-92 people in cuba were desperate the Soviet collapse left the country absolutely bereft there were no subsidies they Orphaned. were hungry yeah. They were really orphans and they were starving. There was a lot of hunger. Uh, people just, they thought only about survival. And frankly, you can't eat a 46-page plan for democracy. So it didn't go anywhere. Also, at this time, Payal was very worried because the Tiananmen Square massacre in 1989 had really, really worried him that maybe they were headed for a, a massacre. And he said, we can't achieve bloodshed uh, and we can't achieve liberty with bloodshed. We can't do it that way. We have to find a peaceful way to do it. And he also was a big fan of solidarity, the Polish 
labor union that mm-hmm. did achieve uh, a victory. It took a long time in Poland, but he thought Lech Walesa was a great model, and he wanted to to do something similar. And he started a movement in 1988. So in the late 80s. He starts this movement for democracy. Um, it was a very vague thing. There wasn't a lot of membership. It was just he didn't want everybody to get arrested. So by creating something called a movement, no membership cards, no list, just people belonging, um, he brought together people that cared about democracy and freedom. He started to collect signatures for something. He didn't get very far. And this was the kernel of an idea that would gather steam in the 1990s. And one of the things that's so amazing about it is by 96, Paya had kind of whittled it down and thought through all this experience of those first years and the difficulty and clearly the sort of restiveness he felt in, among Cubans. He thought, I need something simpler. I need something that people can rally behind. And I need something that, you know, that we can actually achieve. So one day he came up with this idea of a petition for democracy that will be, instead of 46 pages, it was five simple proposals. Free press, freedom of expression, freedom of belief, freedom of political prisoners, free enterprise, a very simple set of things. And he named it after Felix Varela. Varela was a famous teacher and priest in the 19th century who was a champion of Cuban independence. The Varela Project, this thing he thought up, was literally, it was like just one page. And people would sign on the other page. It wasn't a big, complicated thing. It was easily understandable. And a swallow pie, I started collecting signatures for it. And I'll tell you, I mean, there was a certain real genius to this idea because it was based on a legal provision in the Constitution. He was mm-hmm. taking the law of Cuba the law of the state and turning it against itself. And this was the thing when he proposed it to people, he said, look, this is legal. Sign this petition. It's in the constitution. They did it. And pretty soon he started to get more and more signatures. Pope John Paul came to Cuba Mm -hmm. and Pope John Paul in his final homily with before a million people in the central square and in Havana said, you must be the protagonists of your own future. And Oswaldo was ecstatic. Those were his thoughts and yeah. his words, too. And then thousands of people began to sign. By 2002, he had collected thousands of signatures, right? And he needed 10,000 in order to submit them to, to the parliament. And he had submitted 11,020 signatures in May 2002. And it wasn't easy. I mean, as you can tell, from 96 to 2002, it took a couple of years. And there were terrible interruptions uh-huh. because he was always being chased and pushed by state security. Yeah. State security were the Cuban secret police. And we can talk about this. They've been trained by the, the East German the Stasi. Stasi. Yep. Um, they even tried at one point to wreck the whole project by yep. basically creating even fake signatures. Odd yeah. Yep. yeah. So I can talk to you about that. But anyway, but here's this guy who by 1996, you know, essentially proves that Cubans can be the protagonists of their own history by um, essentially nonviolent. His only weapon was a pencil and a paper, you know, thousands signed up there was no internet then he had no modern 
means of communication. You know, he had no smartphone. There was no text messaging, door to door, shoe leather, talking to people one on one, 10 people at a time, explaining to them how legal it was. And Oswaldo Pyle was not some kind of philosopher in the abstract. He was the guy who learned his lessons from the street, you know, yeah. from the time when his mother took his hand and led him to the parish church and people threw stones at them. Yeah. This was a guy who had absorbed life's lessons about liberty. And to me, that makes him so authentic and so yeah. genuine as a, as a person fighting for this. It's There is something beautiful about it. it's not a parroted idea. And that's what I think is so cool and so timeless about it is it is very much like science it is very much like trigonometry can be discovered by civilizations on different continents in different millennia you're just unearthing this common thread it's so you know it goes faster if you pass it along but you can you can create it on your own right different societies created the wheel or different societies built pyramids there is something exceptionally really just kind of badass about oswaldo is that this thread it wasn't some high ivy league i'm this and we are doing that and you know very and it's also it also didn't it also wasn't intoxicated with the sort of uh starry-eyed delusions of of a dictator it'll be pure everyone will have food and it's like that's also not based in reality you're promising heaven and you're going to walk people into hell the the elite enclave at the very top is going to have heaven right just like in the soviet union you guys are going to have all the great stuff but Oswaldo really, it does almost seem to be like a natural law then that you go through this, you go through this hardship, you live under this ruthless dictator, you're criticized and attacked. And, and beautifully, he doesn't even turn into this like blackened soul that wants to burn it all down, that wants to, you know, run into parliament with a bomb on his chest. No, he, he sticks to the rule of law, uses the rule of law that... You know, it's there's something there's something that's almost like a Greek tragedy or almost Shakespearean about about uh, and leaving it into the Constitution. Like, oh, no one's ever going to use this. And he finds that one chink in the armor. Right. It's almost like the 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 knight in the armor. And there's like one sliver of armor missing. And it's like aim right there. There is something beautiful about that. And he creates this thing that it's not about taking power from those in charge so that I can be king of the land. It's the it's the most noble thing. It's we should all be able to vote. There are certain things that is not bestowed upon you by man, but rather the creator. And even if you're not religious, it's like what I'm trying to say is, hey, you can do and say whatever you want. Free press, free elections, which is I mean, we sit here and complain. I'm, I'm bitching at the gas pump today because I'm paying more than I normally do. But it's like the most basic things I have never gone without. I don't think twice about speaking my on the gas. Somebody had write, had written FJB, F Joe Biden, and someone next to it had written FDT, F Donald Trump. And I was looking at that today and thinking about just like that freedom alone. I was like, that's a beautiful thing. Now, granted, it's 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 vandalism of private property, and that's maybe not good. But like the fact that no one was hunted down by state police because of that. And I was like, that's that's beautiful. And, you know, if you had asked me that, I probably looked crazy because I'm standing there in the rain going, this is great. This is art. But like there was a beauty to that, something that I see and I don't think twice about. I just go, oh, oh that Donald Trump or Joe Biden. OK, that's something that's been around for so long that we just have that freedom to say 
that not only can somebody see that and not go to jail, but I can look at it and I don't go to jail for not reporting it to the nearest Stasi unit. And then we just don't really think about that. And that's kind of back to my original thesis and and uh, praise of your book is I've never read a, a greater. And I've I just had on speaking of Cuba, I just had on a couple of weeks ago, Rick Prado, CIA paramilitary legend. Parents flew him out of Cuba when he was 10 years old on his own to come to the United States. Oddly mirroring uh, Oswaldo in terms of, you know, coming, well, you know, aiming to create a better America. But you really do paint a picture of it's not just this abstract, you should be grateful for the freedoms you have. No, I mean, this guy went through his whole life. How he wasn't killed by the state police earlier on, that's something I wanted to segue, and I know I'm rambling now. How and why was he not killed by the state police earlier? Well, uh, after he collected the signatures in 2002 and submitted them to the National Assembly, um, and again, he had more than 10,000. He also had a lot of them in hiding. Um, in addition to the ones he submitted, he had tens of thousands, which the nuns who were his secret allies had hidden. And the thing that happened when he gave them in was utter silence. Fidel didn't react. Of course, his signatures did not produce any laws or he also wanted a referendum a plebiscite on freedom he didn't get that he was given the sakharov award for freedom of thought later that year in 2002 and he almost was not allowed to leave castro let him leave only at the last minute to collect the prize in france and uh, on his way back he stopped in the united states for his first really extended talk with the miami exiles you know, a very big and powerful community in the United States, but one that had not understood him at all. And frankly, uh, it was really late for him and the Miami exiles to be getting together. But by the time he got back to Cuba in early 2003, um, after this big overseas tour, Castro was just fuming. And literally within a, a few weeks, uh, Fidel Castro ordered 75 people arrested. About 45 to 50 were directly working for Paya. Some of the rest were journalists, and they were all uh, arrested for basically collecting signatures for freedom and liberty. And many of them had been involved door to door collecting the signatures, but Paya was not arrested. Um, his people, these 75, were given long prison terms, uh-huh. some of them up to 25 years. years. Yeah. yeah. Oswaldo was not arrested, to get to your question. And I think partly um, it was because he'd won the Sakharov Prize and he had international um, recognition. But also, I think it was a form of psychological warfare. They wanted to torment him by wow. raising suspicions that he wasn't arrested. So wow. he must have something special. And so it was a really terrible time because everybody he had worked with was in jail and he was not. And he tried to support the families and he tried to explain, um, you know, that he actually had a bag ready to go in case they took him. But the point is that Castro was just waging war to try and crush the Varela project. And in October of 2003, months after these arrests, Oswaldo submitted another 10,000 signatures uh, and he had still more in hiding. And again, his point was 
we won't be stopped yeah. by the dictatorship. Um, and in the months and years that followed, he continued to try and carry on the ideals of the Varela project. He tried new projects. Most of the guys who were arrested in 2003, what was called the Black Spring, were released in 2010 and 2011. So that whole decade for him was a really difficult, traumatic period. And that then brings us up to the last period of his life. I was going to say it's a form of psychological warfare because not only does it then beg the question, is Oswaldo, uh, is he a government man? But it's also a form of punishment for him. Yeah, keep fighting. Everyone you love, every faithful soldier you have, they will be punished. But not you. You get to stay at your house. That's It is a form of punishment. It is a form of psychological torture. But again, I think there's that sort of, you can only imagine that he's wargaming it in his mind. And it's, if they're willing to do this, then they're willing to go farther. Meaning that the pain we are going through now is ultimately the least painful option. If they're going to jail people that support me, if we're going to be thrown in a limestone quarry, whatever it is that we are going after, they're willing to go this far to prevent it, which means they will step it up a notch. The state will dole out more violence. So the inevitable end is they will kill us all. So you have to keep going forward. And if you don't think about that, I could very well see it how you'd cave in you go all right i don't i don't don't no more hard labor i'm done i'm done but you have to acknowledge if they're willing to kill one person to shut you all up the thing that they are trying to prevent is clearly worth so much to them that they will eventually kill you all if they have to like the mask will come off it it always does in in communist dictatorships that it always comes off starvation and secret police execution is a is a is a is a staple of these of these dictatorships and Eventually, that is what they do. Now, do you think was the tipping point? Not really a tipping point because it was it was a lot. It was it was much earlier than that. Do you think his interactions and I guess endorsement by President Carter? Do you think that also sealed his fate? Granted, it would have been much later. I don't really think so. Carter did an amazing thing. You know, he came Absolutely. and basically gave a, a speech on national television in Cuba. Um, when he called attention to the Varela project at a time when most Cubans had no idea what it was. Um, and Carter did this uh, at a speech in which Fidel was sitting in front of oh, him. Oh, it's total bad. It was total. Yeah. I got goosebumps listening to that. It was a total, like, walking into prison on your first day and killing the biggest guy. Like, yeah. that was hardcore. And I think, um, you know, one of the things that happened after that was in that summer of 2002, just before Oswaldo got the prize, is that Castro decided to have his own referendum. And he ordered a million people onto the streets and a a crash effort to have a referendum Mm -hmm. that actually uh, amended the Constitution to make socialism eternal and permanent forever. It was kind of so typical of of the Castro dictatorship to, to try and basically be one up Oswaldo, but it told me a lot because Fidel didn't try to react that way to any other dissidents in Cuba. Mm. There were others, and in the 80s especially, um, uh, Paya touched a nerve like nobody else, and here's why. 
what he was doing was mobilizing people for democracy. And Fidel had thought from the, actually the minute he took power in 1959 and had these huge rallies in the public square, um, he had thought that, that he was the only person allowed to mobilize people. He was the maestro of the masses. Yeah. And when someone else began to mobilize people, he was threatened. Yeah, yeah, you you do see the ego, right? You it always amazes me reading about uh, Operation Paperclip and these like these titans of the Third Reich that just seem larger than life, just demons that killed millions. They're weapons masters, and then you read about them like in captivity and like Ashcan. I think that was the United States prison we had in occupied Germany, and these guys would complain about their razors weren't sharp enough. One of the, apparently one of the guys one would just stand all day in front of the only mirror in the house, just looking at his jawbone. Like another guy was just a total slob and a pig. And they would often they would come to the interrogator and they'd all kind of talk shit about each other. And the interrogator was like, "I cannot." He said late and it was like private journals. And this is like nineteen forty five, like late nineteen forty five. He was like, he was like, "I cannot believe just how much like children these guys are." But you always kind of see that is even the most larger than life figure. You do see like the jealous child that's like, no, mom, look at me and not to infantilize them because that that removes, you know, the evil from them. They know they are malicious and competent. They're murderers. But you see that with Chavez, the sort of like, no, like, you know, your retweet got a million. Mine got 10 million. Like, look at me. I am the I am the, you know. I bring the the light to Cuba. I am bringing, you know, I am kicking out the imperialist pigs. I am doing this. And then you again you start to see the flaws in the the very system itself. Is it's it's based on this cult of personality. I don't know. You know, uh by uh by the time 2011 rolled around, um he was in his late fifties. Um, he was still under a lot of pressure. His family was frequently threatened. He was threatened with death repeatedly. Um, and he was sort of an elder statesman by that time. By by 2011, there were some young bloggers who had started up. The internet was coming. It was actually very, very small and weak there. But he wasn't the only one by that time. In fact, he was sort of literally the elder statesman. Um, and some of the young ones were, you know, entirely different in how they thought they were bolder they were even more directly confronting uh fidel but that's when i i think people understood that aswaldo was still enemy number one mm -hmm. you know castro could uh deal in his usual way by locking up some of these bloggers or ignoring them but for something about paya he could not ignore it just stuck in his craw yeah and eventually, as I said earlier, the mask comes off and it's not enough that, I mean, it's almost like the shark, the eyes going black, eventually reverts to, you know, the core of this ideology and it's just kill all opposition. And that is how that is how it ends with with Paya. Um, well, let's talk about how it ends. Sure. Uh, Oswaldo was frequently still traveling around the island but he couldn't get on a plane or a bus i mean people forget cuba is rather large you know it, it would extend sure. up and down the whole east coast if you put it on you know it's it's a large place and to, he was still trying to organize people around the ideals of the varela project 
the ideals that people have a right to rights, that they can actually find a way to express themselves in this dictatorship. So he planned a trip to Santiago de Cuba, which is on the far eastern end of the island, to do some training like this. But he couldn't just take a plane or a bus because he was blacklisted. If he got on the bus or the plane, they would immediately stop him. State security would come running and he wouldn't be able to make the trip. So he figured out a way to get around. He had actually been doing it for a couple of years, which is um, when uh, activists, human rights and democracy activists from abroad would come to help him. They would rent a car and the car had special tourist plates on it. And so he would be riding around in a car that looked like a tourist car. And it would sometimes elude and evade state security for a day or two until they could catch up and figure out where he was. So in July of 2012, he had this trip planned to Santiago de Cuba with two foreigners. One of them was a fellow named Angel Caramero. He was a Spaniard, and he had led the youth wing of an important Spanish political party in Madrid. And the other was uh, Aaron Modig, and he had led the youth wing of a Swedish Christian Democratic Party. They come to help Oswaldo. They rented a car, and on this particular Sunday, um, July 22nd, 2012, they set out for Santiago de Cuba from Havana, which was 11 hour drive. Uh, so it's like Washington to Boston. Sure. You know, it's a big drive. And they got a good part of the way there when finally state security um, noticed them. They were followed part of the way. Then the, the car following them stopped and then another car started following them. And as they were approaching this town of Bayamo, which is almost all the way there, um, it was after lunch on that particular day, a state security car began driving very fast, very close behind them, closer and closer. Ango Caramero was driving, the Spaniard. Um, he'd been driving the whole time. And he could see the faces of these two guys and the license plate. And it, the plate was a state plate. And it was a government car. And at some point on a very lonely and straight country road, the car behind them rammed them from behind. Um, it wasn't a collision. It was a ram from behind. But it caused Caramero to lose control of the car. Um, the government version is that the car spun out of control, hit a tree. Oswaldo was killed. Also, there was one more person in the car. Oswaldo had a protege, a young man named Harold Sapero. Harold and Oswaldo were killed. The two in the front seat, the foreigners, were not. Um, there's something very suspicious about the whole thing. Why is it that the two guys in the back were killed? Um, there's just a lot of unanswered questions. But the bottom line that we know is true is that the car was rammed from behind. And we know that, as I say in the book, because there were text messages immediately afterwards. And I have the text messages showing um, that they were talking about this within minutes after they were on the way to the hospital. Eventually, um, Oswaldo died. There was an enormous uh, funeral. Jaime Ortega came and delivered a eulogy, which was quite extraordinary. But afterwards, uh, Caramero was imprisoned and accused of uh, reckless homicide, you know, of driving recklessly, causing the death. And he was put on trial. And the interesting thing about this trial is that the car being hit from behind was never mentioned. Yeah. Just totally whitewashed from the trial. He was convicted and sentenced to prison. Um, eventually, four months later, he was allowed to 
uh, he was released to serve out his term in Spain under an agreement with Spain, which he did. And then I interviewed him after that. So that's how I got on to the fact that it was such a sham trial. But Oswaldo's death was never properly investigated. It was never explained. It was caused by state security. They ran that car from behind. They whitewashed the trial. And um, I think it's still it's one of those great injustices that this guy who stood for truth and uh, for people being the protagonists of their own history was snuffed out. And and it's it's definitely insensitive to say it this way. So I don't mean for it to come across that way. But it, in a way, Oswaldo still still won in an abstract manner, and that the only way they could get him to shut up is they had to they had to act, and they had to act in an apparent way. There's no proper investigation. Tommy, I think he won in another way. Okay. Um, it's last summer in July of twenty one. 2021 so uh when it was already uh nine years since he was killed there was a huge protest in cuba um people turned out on the streets motivated by hunger by the same things as waldo had talked about um also by just complete um dissatisfaction things have been getting so terrible in cuba uh, shortages of food shortages of everything that they Turned out about 100,000 people came out on the streets on this Sunday afternoon in July of 2021. And one of the things you see in the whole period of Paya's movement was uh, he one time wanted to call the movement Liberacion or Liberation. Um, He liked the word solidarity and he wanted to have a one word name for his movement. He eventually called it Movimiento Cristiano Liberación, the Christian Liberation Movement. But the the L for liberation was something he held up his hand like this all through mm-hmm. the time um, he was doing it. And when everybody, when the Black Spring happened, when they were all taken prisoner, he did this. And nine years after his death, when 100,000 people came out on the streets, they were still holding up their hand for it because the ideals that he championed were still alive. And it's interesting because in 2021, you know, a big reason for that protest was Facebook. A Facebook live broadcast of a protest in a small town went viral in that afternoon and caused so many people to come out. Oswaldo had nothing like that. He actually never advocated mass protest, right? He was quietly collecting signatures, but the fact he had none of the mobilization methods that people have now, no text messaging. He did not own an iPhone, you know, Uh, but the spirit of being the protagonist of your own history was clearly alive in those crowds. And that, to me, was the ultimate testament of his power. There is a, it's almost like a nation going into debt. Oh, we don't have to pay it. Just kick it down the road, right? And then the kids pay it and the kids kids. Next thing you know, you're 30 trillion in debt like us. There is something that like a dictator can almost do where it's, you know, be it Tank Man in China or be it Oswald It There is like this. You can like act on it now. You can have your short-term gratification. You can just get rid of the person. But now you will, it eventually will. It's like a seed being planted. It now is immortalized. When that person's killed, MLK, RFK, JFK, Oswaldo, Tank Man, 
they become immortal and you you turn them invincible and there is something that yeah i think you're right a hundred thousand people coming out not paid not told by by the dictator an organic movement you didn't need a pr team you didn't need the 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 iron the iron fist and the velvet glove it just still came out and there is something about aligning yourself with that that natural law you know again he's not a philosopher not an ivy league educated no it's just through his life experience you know we're all entitled to these things that same idea of that underlying truth that exists across nations and millennia is still why these hundred thousand people came out not you know I'll, I'll give you an interesting footnote about this too after sure. he died uh 2017 a couple of years after he passed away five years later uh, his daughter rosa maria has been carrying the torch um, from miami but she went back and she delivered another ten thousand signatures to the national assembly which had been <laughs> hidden by the nuns <laughs> and i think there's still more hidden by the nuns i mean the, the point is that this um idea of uh, standing up of signing people when they signed their names they gave their addresses they gave their id numbers oh people yeah in the varela project stood up to be counted yeah um and again without any kind of uh, text messaging or social media to latch on to simply word of mouth and i i think that the methods are going to change but this idea is still very very much alive in cuba and castro was naturally and everybody has seen a charismatic figure in his own right, especially in the early years. His charisma created oh, sure. a sort of personalized um, dictatorship. But later, of course, it became intolerable. In the 90s, Cubans suffered greatly. And, and the whole lack of rights from the beginning was uh, a betrayal of what Castro had promised. But now, um, you know, Castro's gone. Even his younger brother, Raul, is... Um, aging and has given up power. And I find that today people are more desperate um, than you can ever imagine. And, you know, the number of Cubans that have fled to come to the United States in the last year is greater than the Marielle boat lift of 1980. Everybody remembers, you know, Marielle was being this huge crisis. We we had almost 200,000 people this year, 125,000 in the case of Marielle. 1994, there was another crisis called the Balseros, uh -huh. the rafters crisis. Um, that was 30-some thousand people. So, I mean, again, we're at this stage where young people especially are just giving up and fleeing for their lives, for their futures. Um, a lot of them are coming here. But the thing is that there, some people say, oh, this is just a, you know, the Cuban dictatorship is like forcing people out as a way to pressure the United States. But I think that probably... Maybe just a tiny part of it, but a big part of it is people are just fed up. They see no future in Cuba. They're hungry. There's shortages of everything. There's no medicine. Um, the country is still run like a dictatorship. State security is still very strong. People are arrested for the smallest thing. Of those who went out on the streets in July of last year holding up the L, there are more than a 1,000 in prison today just for standing on the street and expressing their points of view a thousand in prison and it's at the risk of 
because as I get older, I do have to remain aware of like my own bias. Like I love interviewing like the Delta Force guys and it's Rara America. Who doesn't like rooting for the home team? And you know, the more I read about Eisenhower and Smedley Butler, and I'm like, okay, wait, there are there are entrenched interests, so I have to not just be blindly rah rah America, but I also don't want to be some America hating communist that doesn't realize how good I have it. So I'm always I'm trying to walk this like fine line. In in lieu of not a war movie, not a not in the Hollywood big screen, but the way you painted this story, one thing got me thinking, and maybe this is just a limitation of my own thinking, but I just thought like Jimmy Carter he can't do what he did, which was badass. I mean, in uh, in their home field, being like, by the way, you know, shout out to this guy. You really can't do that if you're not coming from a place of overwhelming force. And I did kind of see in that moment, like, I just had this like vision in my, like this in my mind's eye. I doubt this is actually how it was, but it's almost like when they signed that treaty and, um, to end the war in Japan, they had all the battleships right there with like the guns pointed. I just had this idea of like Carter can speak like that for the right reasons because there's almost that, that like nine barrel battleship pointing at uh, uh, pointing at Cuba. And I did have a like a moment of, and I don't think this is your purpose, but I really did have like a moment of like like pride of like you can do the right thing it doesn't vietnam was horrible the war in iraq was horrible but like there is still something great about this place and like you can you can still do right i think we're in kind of a, a slouch for the last couple of years and now we america it, it's not blind propaganda like you you read about oswaldo and like crawling through glass to have the stuff that I can go about my day. I let can... me give you. Sure. Yeah. Let me give you just another thought. Uh, certainly we do have to count our blessings, but take a place like Belarus, right? This small country, former Soviet Republic. Um, actually, nobody paid much attention to it. A dictator began to rule at 25, 26 years ago. They had an election in 2020. People were fed up with the dictator, right? His name was Alexander Lukashenko. Three women ran uh, as kind of an alliance um, led by a woman named Svetlana Tikhonovskaya. They drew huge crowds. I'm talking, they won 80% of that vote. And what did Lukashenko do? He drove them out of the country. He stole the election and drove them out of the country. And now uh, Tikhonovskaya has gone all over the world um, in exile trying to reclaim that election back. And to me, a hugely inspiring story. Alexei Navalny, you know, the opponent mm -hmm. of Vladimir Putin, in jail now for almost two years for simply having the balls to stand up to the dictator and, and say no more. And I could go on in China and Venezuela and Cuba, and there's a, a whole group of people that have put their lives on the line for freedom. And I think that, uh, you know, there's a tendency in the United States to sort of have a little fatigue about this. Well, now's the time to not be fatigued because we're really up against it. These people are fighting for freedom, just like Oswaldo did. And it's much harder and much worse than it was just a few years ago.
Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I've got to go. Oh, sure, sure. But no, I want to show your listeners again the cover of the book. I would love for some listen. more people to read it. Please, um, it, guys, it is fantastic. The narrator is great. You can put it on Audible. I burned through it and it took me about two days, which in hindsight was a lot. You emailed me. You're like, you read it already? And I looked yeah. at it. I was like, I guess I did just listen to that like nonstop. I wasn't really thinking. I was like, I probably seemed kind of weird. You were like, read this book. And two days later, I'm like, it was great. And it's like, what? And I realized, I was like, that was a lot, wasn't it? Um, I did review it on Amazon, of course, gave you a glowing review. But I mean, really, not. it's not in a, it's not in a, in an unrealistic, it's not a superhero movie. It is, I mean, Truly, if you just want to feel some gratitude, maybe you're, you know, bored of life. It's not until your power goes out that you really appreciate having air conditioning. If at the very least you just want your life, your own life in the United States to look more vibrant, read this book and you'll, you'll, you'll be happy that your biggest problems are that the recycling didn't come today. It is, Yay. I mean, really, it puts it into perspective. Not only that, it kind of does conjure up the, jfk we stand with free peoples around the globe when you see these people fighting throughout the world you're like that is what this country is based on you have to stand in solidarity with them and i think it's beautiful and i can only imagine your next book will have to be something about north korea or china because i feel like that's we'll see. the thread you're going on all right but i'll let you know where the next one is yes sir we still have to do the dead hand i know we do rate, we'll eventually get into it don't we'll don't get act, to that too we'll get but, to that that's the that's the right. that's my grand scheme that's that's my master plan is dead hand okay yes. folks thanks thanks again hope people read it absolutely give me liberty the true story of oswald Apaya and his daring what was it i messed it up his daring plan for a free cuba did i get it i think i got it fantastic i'll take it Thanks, Tommy. Yes, sir. The link will be in the description. Your website will be in the description. Go check it out. Go get the book. It's fantastic. I wouldn't have you on if I didn't love the book. Thank you so much, Mr. Hoffman. God bless.